Amen. Good to see everyone who's here this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we're surely glad you're here. We want you to come back and be with us. Hope we make you feel welcome, and I'd encourage our members to make a special effort to do that. Let me make a, a brief announcement about our Sunday afternoon services at 4 o'clock. I encourage any of you that, that can to be back for that. We're trying something new this year. We're doing sort of a different format. Things change up. Tonight is going to be a regular sermon uh, on what I hope is an interesting topic, and that is uh, the death of a particular church that we find in the New Testament. That doesn't sound very positive, but I think we can learn a lot from it. So I'd encourage you to be back for that. Coming up in a couple of weeks, and there's already some buzz going around about it, we're going to have the first of uh, our debates. And uh, Wes is going to be uh, defending the idea that instrumental music is what the authority of the New Testament teaches us to do. And uh, I'm going to not agree with that. And so we're going to debate that. And then the next week we're going to switch it around and I'm going to defend it. And he is not going to agree with it. So you might find that interesting. A number of you have already asked things about it, made comments about it. And uh, someone even mentioned the other night, you know, it would be a good time to invite uh, perhaps some, you know, some folks that uh, studying with and talking with. And that's right, because it is going to be a friendly discussion. Obviously, Wes and I like each other, so we're not going to be mean. But it, it also is going to be a very, you know, we're going to dig in and really study this subject that obviously a lot of people disagree about. And so uh, you may find that interesting. I hope you will. Without any further delay, though, let's get into our lesson this morning, and you can tell above me that we're going to return to talking about order in the church, and as Bob mentioned earlier in the Lord's Supper, we are going to talk about the church built upon one foundation, and that foundation, obviously, is Jesus Christ. So let's get right into the lesson. There we go. Let this thing warm up for a second. But we'll get right into the lesson. There we go. Back up. All right. So... Beginning in Matthew chapter 16, and let me go back to that theme verse for this quarter. Jesus came to his disciples, to those we know as the apostles, and he said, Who do people say I am? Now I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some were saying you're one of the prophets risen from the dead. Some are saying this, some are saying that. But Peter spoke up and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus, based upon that statement of faith, that fact, said, upon this rock I will build my church. And that's what we're talking about this year. We're talking about the Lord's church. And just in the very basic sense, we're talking about the building of the Lord's church. I will build my church upon that very rock. Now next quarter, I'm going to return to this passage and that statement and really talk about that. But let's go a little further this morning. The church is built on one foundation. If you're going to construct anything, and as we were saying downstairs in, in, in my class this morning, we were saying that any building is only as sound as its foundation. Any structure is only as strong as the foundation upon which it is built. Well, our building, our structure, just like this great song that Edward just led for us. It is built upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ. And that makes it strong. That makes it solid. Jesus said, I will build my church. 
The church is built on one foundation, that is the Christ, the Son of God. However, it is apparently easy for people, human beings, to lose sight of how the church, and I mean any church, whether we want to talk about the church universal over the world, or we want to talk about any one congregation within that great uh, you know, uh, structure, organization of churches. If we want to talk about any church, we have to talk about it being built upon the foundation of Christ. But people find that easy, apparently, to forget. And many have done so. And there are a lot of discussions, and you could turn on, you know, with all of the protests and everything and, you know, going on, heated discussions that are going on about different faiths and different religions and, you know, rights and all of that kind of thing. You can turn on the television any given day and you will find a discussion of religion. And you will find usually that what is positive or what is presented as being the thing you should believe is some ecumenical idea that any faith is good and right and any church or any system of belief is just as good as any other. And yet, we talk about the Son of God. And we talk about Him building His church. And I think sometimes that we are divided. And I know that in sentiment, to a degree, and I want you to understand that, I am, or at least I understand it. I want, for example, in our country... I want the First Amendment to be defended. I want every citizen in this nation to have the right to believe as they choose to believe, to practice their religion or their faith or their lack thereof as they choose to do so. I want that because I want to do that. And I don't want someone coming along and telling me that the United States has adopted this religion and you must be part of it. Because if it's not the truth, I'm not going to be able to. And that's happened for most of history when there have been organized governments. We live in a place, thankfully, and I am thankful to God, we live in a place where the wisdom of men saw that, you know, if you let people practice their religion as they believe, you're going to have a lot happier citizens. And that's true. And I want that to continue, but... When we speak in a religious sense of what is right, not what you have a right to do, that's a different discussion, but what is right, then we have to focus on Jesus. For there is only one Son of God that came to save man. There are not many messiahs that are equal, and there are not many faiths that are equal. Nothing is equal to our Lord. And when we begin to talk about the church, we talk about the one church that he built and the one foundation upon which he built it. And it apparently is easy for people to forget that. So the church must be built on, and you'll notice I put in a hyphenated phrase, it must be built on and it must be built according to the plan of Jesus Christ if it is going to be right. I go back to Psalm 127, and I realize that this is a much more general passage than just talking about the church. But the principle is correct. Except the Lord build the house, any house, your house with your family, my house, the church, which is the house of the Lord, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. 
And that word vain there means uselessly. Even wastefully. Like you're wasting your time, you're wasting your effort, you're expending money for a lie. If it is not being built as the Lord would have it to be built. Now let's go a little further with that. One foundation, Jesus Christ. We're going to see, obviously, that the Bible teaches that. And I'd like for you to open to Isaiah chapter 28, if you've not done so. And let's look at a passage here. One foundation, Jesus Christ. God said in Isaiah 28 in verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion. Zion is the spiritual term in Scripture for Jerusalem. And we understand, as this is quoted in the New Testament, the heavenly Jerusalem, you know, the city of Zion now is the church. And we can show passages that obviously teach that. But I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried or tested stone, a precious cornerstone. <clears throat> I'm going to mention that this morning, but I'll really come back in the le next lesson and talk about the cornerstone. But I lay a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. We were talking earlier about a structure being sound, and the foundation needs to be solid. Well, this is a sure foundation. He that believes, and I want you to notice the phrase, shall not make haste. Now, if we go on and look elsewhere, and I'm not going to focus so much on it right now, but in Psalm 118 and verse 22, quoted in Matthew 21, We'll find that this stone, this foundation stone, is the one that most builders, including most of God's own people, rejected. They didn't want any part of that stone. And we'll find, if we look closer at Isaiah 28, that the verse is given in a context in which, indeed, most of his people, the northern ten tribes are under discussion here, they had completely rejected the city of Jerusalem, and thus they had rejected the foundation. And God, if you'll read this carefully, while He is blasting His people, and I mean you'll find, look at verse 1. We looked at this a little downstairs this morning. But notice, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which are the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Now, that's not a really pleasant view. But verse 8, it gets worse. Notice in verse 8, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. You get the idea that God is disgusted with His people. And yet, we find this beautiful verse, often quoted in the New Testament, in this context. And a person might say, man, if God is so disgusted with these people, why is He giving this great statement of future hope? Well, when you look at the next couple of verses, what you find is, notice verse 9, Whom shall He teach knowledge, and whom shall He make to understand doctrine? And it is them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. The history of God's people, and I don't want to get off deep into this history this morning because I like to talk about it, and I'll do that, but I don't want to. But the history of God's people, and especially the northern ten tribes, is about maybe two, three years, that short amount of time after Isaiah wrote this, they went away into captivity to Assyria never to return to their land. That is the lands of Ephraim and Naphtali and all of Dan and all of these tribes. But... Their children learned. 
You can imagine being a child and suddenly ripped away from your home, and the natural question is you can ask why. Why did I have to leave my home? Why did I have to leave my bed? Why did I have to come to this strange place? Why do I have to be with people who don't look like us? They don't talk like us. I can't understand them. I feel lost. Why do I have to be here? And there were a few people, like Isaiah, who could teach them why. Because your fathers neglected God. Because they abandoned God. Because they did that, God had to destroy the land and had to... Now, you might, as a child, be bitter from that. Man, he's a mean God. Or you might say, all of this pain around me, all of this destruction around me, like a child, like me and some of you, coming from a broken home, looking around and seeing at all of the, the things that abandoning God will do. What you say is, it's going to be different in my house. And these children did that. And God was holding out a future hope for them. And you'll notice, this is where we get that verse, and a lot of people kind of take it completely out of context and apply it to everything. But look at verse 10. In fact, it's repeated a couple of times here. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What does that mean? That's teaching children. You don't assume a child knows anything, and these children didn't. You go all the way back to the basics, and you teach them. You teach them what's right. You teach them what's true. You teach them what's possible for them. You teach them of the future hope of verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone. And you teach them not to make haste. You teach them to live their lives and make decisions in such a way, not rash decisions, not hasty decisions, not false decisions that will lead to disaster and destruction. You teach them that, and if a person will believe in this foundation that God lays, he will not make haste. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that, because... If you were to go to the New Testament and see this quoted in Romans 9.33 and 10.11, you'll see the verse, but the end of it will be, He that believes shall not be ashamed. And that's, you know, when we think of make haste, we talk about doing something quickly and rashly. And when we talk about being ashamed, well, we all understand what it means to be ashamed. So why is it misquoted or quoted so differently? And I want to talk a little bit about this phrase, make haste. And we'll dig a little bit into the Hebrew, although this is not going to be a grammatical lesson. But if you were to look at this term in Hebrews 28 and verse 16, it does mean to be rash in your decision making. You know, like making a quick decision about something that is so important that will affect the rest of your life. And they had done that. These children were taught, they were raised and taught, weaned from their mother's breast, and they were being taught, your fathers made a rash decision 200 years ago. They rebelled against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, God's rightful heir. They abandoned Jerusalem and the temple of God. They set up golden calves like our forefathers did in the time of Moses. They set up two golden calves, and they bowed down to them, and they worshipped them, and they bought into all kinds of gods, like Baal and Asherah 
and even gods like Chemosh, Molech, and the horrible atrocities that go with them. And they did all of those kinds of things. They partied in the name of religion, in their fertility cults. And they destroyed this land and your home. But you don't have to be like that. You can make better decisions. Because you see, rash decisions lead to agitated lives. They lead to lives that are always running. You can go out here into the sea of humanity around here, the millions of people. And let me tell you, the common thread you'll find running through most of these places are people trying to run in some fashion away from life and the disasters they've created. That's what you're going to find. And God is saying make better decisions. God is saying don't be hasty. Don't make the quick decisions that ruin your life. And to those young people that are gathered here today, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what kind of home you live in. I don't care what your situation is. And when I say I don't care, I mean I understand. I understand what it is like to scrounge around and not know where the next place you're going to sleep is. I've been there. But you can rise above that and you can make better decisions. And when you do, you won't have to spend your life running away in fear. I go home to a home that is secure and solid. I go home to a wife that I know and I love and I know she loves me. I go home to a family that I feel good and secure within. You don't have to run away the rest of your life. Make good decisions. And the end result And sometimes this Hebrew word is used to make the logical conclusion. Because if you make bad decisions and you run away in fear, you're going to end up being ashamed. And so that's exactly what the Septuagint, that's why I've got that LXX at the end of that black box. The Septuagint just used a Greek word to draw the conclusion to all of that. And that's what's quoted in the New Testament in Romans 9 and 10. Don't make rash decisions and end up running away and end up being ashamed. One foundation, Jesus Christ. If we were to look at the church, and Bob was talking about that a little earlier, and he was exactly right. We would look at the church that is built like a wall of stone built upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ. I want you to go over with me to Acts chapter 4. When Peter and John were arrested because they had healed a lame man, and they were called before the council, and they had to defend themselves, Peter begins to talk about the authority, the name behind whom uh, everything they do, everything they say and the miracles they perform, the authority that is behind all of that. Now, I'm not going to read all of that, but I want you to drop down with me to verse 10 when he says this to the council. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it is even by him that this man does stand before you whole. Now, literally... 
a guy who had been lame, crippled for over 38 years, was standing there in their presence. I mean, you can't deny that. There's just nothing you can say about that. And Peter is saying it's by the authority of Jesus that he does. And notice verse 11, as he talks about Jesus, he said this, meaning this Jesus, this is the stone which was set at naught. That is, you made nothing of the stone. You builders rejected it, and it has become the head of the corner. Now, what's he talking about? Exactly what we were looking at in Isaiah, and literally he is quoting from Psalm 118. What he is saying is this. God has one foundation. The Son of God who came down here and died for us and who was raised from the dead, that is the foundation and he is the one that you builders, you Jews, rejected. That's why your building is not solid. That's why it is not going to stand because you rejected the foundation upon which the building must be built. Notice verse 12. Is every religion as good as another? Is every Savior, every Messiah, every prophet equal? No. Peter was adamant in verse 12 when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven that is given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one foundation. And in fact, as we pursue that, And we go to passages like Ephesians 2, and I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to spend time on it today, but I will in the next lesson. We look at Ephesians 2 and we understand that's exactly what the apostles are talking about. Look at verse 20. As he says to these Christians, we'll come back to this, but you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You are built upon Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building... And that's what this rock wall represents. The building. Us. In whom all the building fitly framed together. We'll talk about that phrase. Grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In whom you also, you Ephesian Christians, you are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's go to 1 Peter 2 though. And notice, you know, Peter kind of breaks it down into simple language. What Paul is talking about there. So let's read in 1 Peter 2 and go down with me to verse 3. Now you'll notice in chapter 1, he's been talking about this idea of coming to the Lamb. He's been talking about people being, you know, becoming Christians. And I'll pick up in the middle of this in verse 3 of chapter 2 when he says, If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. What does that mean? You've accepted the fact that God is full of grace. That He has favored us with Jesus. If you believe that, you believe he's the Son of God, he asked his disciples, who are people saying I am? Who do you say I am? You're the Son of God. If you believe that, and you have obeyed him, and thus you've tasted that grace, that favor, you've known, for example, the feeling of being forgiven of a sin you've committed, of of knowing and having a promise from God, yes, as disgusting, as hideous as that sin was, I took it away. If you've tasted that. Now notice as he goes on. To whom coming? That is coming to Jesus. As unto a living stone. And that's what he is. A living stone. A foundation stone. That's what he is. A living stone. Disallowed indeed of men. 
And most people on the face of the earth do not accept him. And that's true. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That is valuable is what this term means. Worth a lot. And you also. As living stones. Notice that. Plural. As living stones. You are built up for a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And that is why, verse 6, it is contained in Scripture, and we read it, you know, or we quoted it. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him, notice, Peter says, shall not be confounded. And you know, that's an interesting way that Peter quotes it. Because it is an idea of being confounded that is really messed up in your thinking. Let me tell you what happens to most people. And we all understand this. Most people start out in life when they're young, they're bold. And they're committed. And they stand for things. And you can go out here and you can walk through a college campus, for example, and you can ask 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds... You can ask them what they believe and how they feel about things, what they stand for, and they will tell you. And they make decisions based on that. And sometimes they make rash decisions. And sometimes they make bad decisions. And then they live their lives in consequence to those decisions. And then they get older. And they begin to feel shame and fear. And they try to run away from what they have done and the decisions they've made. And then they end up being just all messed up in their thinking. And they're not that secure, committed, sure, 21-year-old anymore. And that's what Peter is saying. But unto you, Christians, that have not done that, you have accepted Jesus. You have come to Jesus. You have tasted the grace of God. Unto you, therefore, who believe, He is precious. But unto them which are disobedient, well, He is, like Psalm 118 says, the stone that the builders disallowed. The same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I wonder sometimes, how many people who live disastrous lives who have a family member or a neighbor or a friend who made better decisions. I wonder how many of those people, whether they say it or not, at least think it. Man, I wish I had done what that person did. And that's sad. But that's exactly what he's talking about here. And he begins to talk about, and I won't read further, but he begins to talk about the effects of believing in Jesus Christ and what it does for your life and how you stand out in the midst of a world who makes rash decisions and becomes ashamed. Many people lose sight of how the church must be built. They just completely lose sight of that and they focus on the stones rather than the foundation. It becomes about us. It becomes about what we want and what we believe and what we have a right to. And many people forget Jesus in that equation. And they forget the foundation that God has laid. But Paul warns us. 
And I want you to turn with me to one final passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul warns us not to build on something besides the foundation of Jesus Christ. And Paul warns us to be careful how we build on that foundation. You'll notice what was happening in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing a letter to a church that's not that old, but what was already happening there is they were focusing on the stones. They were focusing on themselves. I believe in Paul. Well, I believe in Apollos. Well, hey, I'm for Peter. And Paul asked questions like, as we back up to verse 3, you know, he chastises you. You're, you're, you're carnal. You're thinking like the world. Because one person is saying, verse 4, I am a Paul. Another, I am a Paul. Well, who are we? We're nothing but ministers, servants. That's just like, and God forbid this ever happens. And I mean that. No, we're blessed at this place. Wes is working here. I, I, I count it a blessing every day to have Wes working with me. And I'm sure that you count that as a blessing as well. We're fortunate in this place, but God forbid it should ever come to the point where we have some doctrine or some whatever, and one person says, well, I'm with Wes, and I'm, I'm with Michael. Paul said, who are we? We're nothing but servants, and it ain't about us. And when we had these debates, the reason why Wes and I sat down and talked about it, said, you know, if we're going to have them, then let's switch it up. One of us take one side one week and the other side the next. Why? Because we never want to foster that idea of who I'm for. Paul said, we're nothing. I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It ain't about us, it's about God. And so he goes on here. And he talks about the building of God. Notice that in verse 9. You are God's building. God's building. Notice that. And verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. And that's what we are. We're laborers together, as Paul would say earlier. We're wise master builders if we always remember the foundation, Jesus Christ. In the construction of any congregation, that's what's important. And notice Paul says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. Let's continue reading here. According to the grace of God which is given unto me in verse 10, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let every man, each one, take heed how he builds thereupon. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. What he is saying is this, as long as Michael and Wes and you, all of you, as long as we are building this congregation on the foundation of Jesus Christ, as long as He is the emphasis, then man, it's going to be fine. But when we lose sight of that, if I lose sight of that, and I begin to think, man, I want to outdo Wes, you know, I want people like me better than Wes. I want to know, I want to be hearing from people there from Michael, not Wes. Or if we begin to struggle internally, that person who sits on that side of the building, or this person who sits on this side of the building, and perhaps we kind of gravitate towards sides of the building, we're in trouble. And we're headed for destruction. Because as Paul is saying, there's only one foundation. It's not Michael, it's not Wes, and it's not you. Is Jesus. 
And we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, but you believe in Jesus, no matter where you come from, no matter what's happened in your family, or even what's happened in your life, you believe in Jesus. You know He is the Son of God, and you know He has all the answers. You may not understand how He'll work things out in your life, but you believe that He can. If you'll come to Him this morning and simply confess, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I want to change my life, and I'll let you in on something. This weekend is kind of very special to me. Because as of tomorrow morning, about 12 o'clock or going on 12 o'clock our time, I will have been a Christian for 40 years. And 40 years ago, I was a very confused, messed up individual. But I knew I wanted to change my life. If you want to change your life, and you'll be baptized, all the mistakes, all the sins, all the things you've done will be washed away. And you'll begin a life being built on Jesus Christ. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?